How about that one? Surely you've heard this one before. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Finally, if you've watched enough uh, sports or anything else out there in famous people land, you will hear, hear, you may have heard this one often poorly quoted. <laughs> I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Have you heard that one before? What do all these sayings, verses, have in common? They all come from the book of Philippians. And we begin this book today together. Over the next three months or so, we will be in the book of Philippians. A sweet book. Jesus-centered book. Gospel-rich book. Joy-giving book for the people of God. Who's excited to be in the book of Philippians today? Especially after Ecclesiastes. All scriptures God breathed, amen? So today, we open up the book of Philippians. So grab your Bibles, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to read today. Trust over the next three months that the Lord is going to speak to us. Let's see how he does so in these opening verses. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. You can follow along with me. You can follow along by reading in your own Bible or up on the screen. You will see the words. Here's what Paul says. Verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus... To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Amen? 
Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty, gracious Father, since our whole salvation depends on our true understanding of your word, grant that our hearts, Lord, would be freed from worldly affairs right now. That we may hear and understand your holy word with all diligence and faith so that we might rightly discern your gracious will, that we might cherish your will and live by it with all earnestness to the praise and honor of Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. The book of Philippians. It's a letter. A letter written by someone to a particular recipient for a particular particular reason. Okay, I want to introduce you to these important people and purposes as we get started. We see right from the opening verse that Paul is the primary author. We see Paul and Timothy mentioned here. But Paul the Apostle is the primary author of this letter. Right? He, in these 13 letters, Paul would typically introduce himself as an apostle, right? This apostle. He calls himself the least of the apostles in some place. But nonetheless, Paul would often introduce himself as an apostle, thus establishing who he was and also establishing his credibility for writing. Paul was an apostle, but we see here that Paul introduces himself in this letter, not as an apostle, but as what? A servant. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Paul sees himself as a servant. Better translated, a slave of Jesus. A bondservant or a bondslave. Paul is saying, as he introduces himself, this. I'm a servant of Jesus. I belong to him. He bought me at a price, the price of his own blood. He is my master, and to him I am submitted, and I will posture myself toward him completely with humility. That's who Paul is. He is a servant of Jesus. And I think even here we get a picture of what not just Paul is in his understanding, Paul and Timothy, but we also get a picture right away of what it means to be a Christian. As Paul introduces himself, he introduces us who know and trust in Jesus. We are his servants. We are his bond slaves. We belong to Jesus. We've been bought at a price. He is our master. And we posture ourselves toward him in full submission and humility, and we do so gladly. Amen? We know who Jesus is. He's king. And we know who we are. We are his servants. He is our master. And then he goes on to tell us who he's writing to. Paul and Timothy servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers 
and deacons. Paul is writing to the church at Philippi. Philippi was a Greek city. You may go back to the book, uh, book of Acts uh, in chapters 15 and 16. You see kind of how this whole relationship with, with these people in this church started. It's actually a wonderful account with the conversion of Lydia and uh, the Philippian jailer who asked that question, right? What must I do to be saved? You talk about a powerful question. So I would encourage you to go back and read Acts chapter 16 to understand kind of the backdrop of who these people were. But Acts 16, 12 even tells us that Philippi was a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. Philippi was named after uh, Philip of Macedon, which would have been the father of Alexander the Great. So this city was a city of great prominence. It was seen by many to be a mini-Rome. Right? Rome is the capital. In some ways, this was a mini-Rome that represented the glory and dignity of Rome. And so he writes to what he, who he says are the saints who were at Philippi. The saints, the, the holy ones. Which, if we're not as surprised by the word slave or bond slave as a designation of who, who Paul and Timothy are, who we are, we're equally surprised by this designation. He calls these Philippians, these Greeks who have come to know Jesus by faith, he calls them the holy ones, the saints. Gives us a picture of what Christ makes us to be as well as we embrace him by faith. That in, as the work of Jesus is applied to us, that we are now holy in standing before God. Amen to that? That when Paul considers the people at Philippi who had come to know Jesus and how to, what to call them and what to refer to them as, he says, you are saints. You are holy ones. And it's not that they were perfect and sinless at this point in their progression as a follower of Jesus. No, they were anything but that. But Paul knew who they ultimately were in standing before the living God because the blood of Jesus had bought them at a price, because the blood of Jesus had covered them, and because that blood was holy, that they were now considered to be holy. And that gives us, as well, not just these Christians at Philippi, but the Christians at Renovation Church in North Syracuse in our day, we are known by and seen as to be saints. We are the holy ones of God at Renovation Church. Do you know that gracious designation? Do you know that you are servants of Christ, but at the same time you are known to be as holy in God's presence because of the blood of Jesus? In the midst of all your sins and struggles, in your suffering, in the shame that you might feel, and all the finger pointing of Satan, do you know that when God sees you, he sees you as holy? Because of Jesus? That's the gospel, my friend. You can't buy that at Walmart or Target. Preach 
You can only receive that from Jesus. And these people have. And if you know Christ, you also have. You are servants and you are saints. You see, that's the wonderful thing that we're reminded of right away in this book. That Jesus Christ defines who we are. We're saints and we're servants. Do these words shape the way that you consider yourself this morning? You're servants of Jesus. You're saints in Jesus. Defined by Jesus. That's who we are. But let's not miss this as well, because we could if we're too fast. Defined by Jesus, we're also ordered in his church. Right? That, who's he writing to? The saints who are at Philippi, along with what? The overseers and the deacons. And in some way, and uniquely here, unlike any other epistle in the 13 letters, we see that Paul doesn't just write to the saints in a particular place, he's emphasizing saints and the overseers and the deacons. And right here we see that not only are we defined by Jesus, but we are ordered to be a part of his church. And in his church there are members, saints, there are overseers, elders, and there are deacons. And this is good for us. We don't like structure. We don't like order. Right? We, dis we don't trust it. It must be bad. It must disrupt true freedom. But what we see here and reminded of once again, that God's good design for his people is that there be shepherds and overseers, that there be deacons who serve and give themselves to to enabling the elders to focus on the ministry of the word and prayer. And oh, are there ever saints and members in those who belong to the body of Christ and share in that fellowship together? That's who we are. And this is how God has ordered us. And so we meet Paul. We meet the Philippians in, in an introductory fashion. And before I move on to the rest of the passage, I think it would be good to introduce Maybe three main themes that we see weaved through this book. Paul, in writing from prison in Rome to these Christians, has at least th these three purposes. Number one, he wants to promote unity in this church. You'll see it. Division is at least a danger for them. He says, I want to promote unity in the church. Number two, he wants to address an ongoing attack from false teaching. We're going to see false teaching. right? It's always the, the constant possibility and issue that we have to face in the church that false teaching would creep in. And he's writing to address that. And then last, as we'll see, there's such a, a saturation of joyful anticipation in the book. Such hope in the book. He wants to remind the Philippians of the soon and coming day when Jesus would return. We'll see that often. That their lives are, are characterized and motivated by and are directed toward the second coming of Jesus. So as we read this book, don't be surprised when Paul is addressing division and promoting unity. Don't be surprised when he is correcting us of false doctrine and pointing us to the real truth about Jesus. And don't be surprised and actually be, be looking out for encouragements about the soon and coming return 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? This is the introduction. He's introducing himself. He's writing a letter. And right away we are confronted with, in a, in a comforting way, such a deep, meaningful connection that Paul has with his church. I don't know if you got that as I read these opening 11 verses. We see people that share a deep, meaningful connection with one another. And Paul's expressing this. Such a personal, meaningful, affectionate opening passage. And he expresses this in verses 3 through 5 by expressing gratitude to God for the Philippians, right? He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul is grateful for these people. Paul is grateful for this church. He knows as he reflects in prison that people are the most precious gifts that God gives for us to enjoy in this life. People. He thanks God for them as he thinks of them. Why does he thank God for them? Because he understands that the Philippians and all the relationship that they share, all the meaning, it's all ultimately a gift from God. Do you know that? You think about the people in your life that you share this kind of meaningful connection with. Do you know that ultimately... Those experiences, those joys, those affections, they are all hand-wrapped gifts of God to you. He's the source of this. It's all from Him. And so when Paul thinks about the Philippians, he thanks God. And this reveals this intimate, deep connection that he has with them. He also thanks them because of their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He loves these people. He's grateful for them because the Philippians have been partners with Paul in gospel ministry. And that, that connection is built upon that. This partnership that they have in gospel ministry. And they have been tangibly loyal, right? They have been giving to Paul. They've been sharing in his gospel ministry. They've been providing for his needs. Super generous, the Philippians, in providing for his needs. And so he thanks them for the partnership. Not only does he express this connection in his gratitude to God for the Philippians, but also his assurance of God's work in the Philippians. He says, I'm sure of this, verse 6, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. I've already mentioned this memorable, powerful verse in the introduction this morning. Paul has 
an assurance for these people. Paul is certain that God has begun a powerful, saving work in the Philippian church. He saw it happen. I saw the start of all this. I saw what God did in you when I preached the gospel to you for the first time. I saw that powerful, spirit-enabled work happen at the beginning. And you know what? Because I know God, and because I know the nature of how He saves and I know his promises are true, I know that since I saw that it was started, we're all going to see that it's going to come to completion. I am certain of it, because I'm certain of the God who has made it true. The wonderful truth that we're given here is that when God starts a work in us, he completes that work. Amen? That is, that is the nature of who he is and how faithful he is to every one of his promises. If he makes a promise to you, he fulfills it. There's no chance for anything else to happen. It's signed, sealed, delivered. It's guaranteed. If God starts a work in you, he completes it. Amen? Friend, please hear that today. Paul's assured of it for these people. But I want you to hear that I'm assured of it for you as well. That you should be assured of it for one another here in the body. That you should consider the truth that if God starts something in your life, he will surely complete it. He will not stop until it finds its full completion. Man, that is wonderful news. Romans 8.30 tells us this as well, right? It says this, in the golden chain, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Meaning this, if God justifies you, he will glorify you. Nothing will thwart the promises or purposes of God in your life. Do you hear that, Christian? So in the midst of your current struggles with sin, in the midst of your fumblings, in your inadequacies and your weaknesses, in the slowness of the progress, and even momentary backsliding, if you will, the struggle of faith, here's the assurance. If God started a work in you, he will be faithful to complete that work in you. Are you assured of this this morning? It's as sure as the God who made the promise to you that it will be fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Rest assured, oh friend. I would encourage you, if you're here today struggling and you're weak in the faith, meditate on this verse. Rest in this promise. Matter of fact, I would memorize this if you have not already. It will be an encouragement to your own soul. And by the way, as you incorporate this in your own soul, it will be an amazing encouragement to other people in your life who are doubting, who are self-shaming, who are subject to the finger-pointing of Satan, who struggle with, with assurance. This verse will be one that you can share with them in the midst of their difficulties. He who began a good work in you 
will be faithful to complete it. Amen? The one who started it will bring it to completion. Not only is he a sure of God's work in the Philippians, but he also has an affection for the Philippians. Look at verse 7 and 8. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. Love that language. I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Do you feel the tone of that? He loves these people. He holds them dear in their heart. What's interesting is he tells them that they are partakers with him in grace, in both his um, defense, imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. That's an interesting juxtaposition, isn't it? The reason I feel this way about you is because we both share in grace. And we've shared in grace, as sweet as that is, in the sourness and difficulty of some of the most awful experiences, imprisonment. That's an interesting juxtaposition. They've shared in and partook it with him in his imprisonment. And that's where all this grace and affection and love is all occurring in the context of persecution and imprisonment. Makes sense, right? Think of the bonds of soldiers in the context of a war. Right? When there's difficulty and there's adversity, and you share in that together, in your common mission, there's a, there's a binding that takes place in relationship. It makes a lot of sense. Sinclair Ferguson says, the bonds of grace are strengthened by adversity. The affection of the heart is deepened by sharing in suffering. That's what we see here. This affection that is welling up because they share together in such gospel adversity. Relationship here is what we see. Relationship marked by gratitude, assurance, and affection. And in some ways, this gives us a picture of what Jesus does when he becomes the defining thing in our life. Jesus. When Jesus is at the center, when Jesus defines us. When, when we have a share in Christ, we have this share together in joy, in gratitude, in partnership, in affection. That's what happens when we share in Christ. Right? We think about all the relationships that we have in this world. There's something unique and wonderful and beautiful about what we share in together 
when we share in Christ. Am I right or am I wrong? There's a deep affection and gratitude. There's, there's a unique connection that we have when we share in Christ. We know this as a church. It goes beyond affinity. Like, we all like the same things. It goes beyond economics. It goes beyond ethnicity. It goes beyond maybe certain, certain uh, shared experiences that maybe create some superficial connections. But when we know Christ, when we share in Him, it binds us together in a uniquely meaningful way. And that's what we see here with Paul and these Philippians. They're bound together. They're not even with each other at this time. But there's this affection, there's this joy. And I just want to gently encourage you to see the kind of joy and connection that you have in Christ together. I want to encourage you to see the value of Christian community. To see that it's irreplaceable. You can't find this kind of meaning, this kind of depth outside of Christ. It's what we know and share because of Christ. When we share Christ, we enjoy this meaningful connection. So see that today. Pursue that in your life. This meaningful connection in the body. It's a responsibility that we have, of course. But it's also a privilege to enjoy. We are partners in the gospel. We are participants in grace. We share this together in Christ. It's God's good design for you. Don't think for one minute that you can flourish in your faith and enjoy all that God has for you in isolation. You have the body and you need the body. So lean in to the joy and beauty of what God has provided to you in the body of Christ. It's such a meaningful connection but we also have great purpose in our prayers. And that's where he moves on to, and I'm going to conclude here. He, like he often does in the beginning of a letter, goes on to pray. Or at least share what he's praying for in the lives of the people that he's writing to. And I wonder if this doesn't point to, point us to, the kind of priorities and desires that we should have for one another in the kingdom of God. First, we see that Paul prays for their love to be multiplied. 
He says, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Paul wants their love to be multiplied. Why that? Why love? We understand that love is the greatest commandment. Right? When Jesus asked, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love. I pray that your love for God would abound more and more. Jesus goes on to say, and love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two commands depend the whole law and the prophets. Love. When he says, I want your love to abound more and more, he's saying, I want your love for God to abound, and I want your love for one another to abound more and more. This is the great commandment. This is the fulfillment of the law. This love is the very nature of God. As we love one another, we image the nature of the God we worship. This is the very essence of the gospel. And even by praying that their love would abound more and more, Paul is implicitly saying, may you know and rest in and and soak in the love of God that he has for you. Because we can't love more and more if we do not know and receive and integrate, appropriate, and soak in the love of God that he has for us. We love, why? Because he first loved us. What an all-encompassing thing and most appropriate thing for Paul to pray for. That love would abound more and more. With all knowledge and discernment. Be careful as we seek and pray for love. Because he adds this phrase, with knowledge and all discernment. We must never divide love from the truth. We must never use love as a way to negate wisdom and the will of God. When we pray for love to abound more and more, we are not asking for a deviation from discernment and knowledge. We understand this for sure, that when we think about the best way to, and most appropriate way to apply God's love in our relationships, man, it requires a lot of discernment and knowledge. We don't always know what love looks like in particular situations. In the messiness of trying to pursue Jesus in relationships, can we just admit that we don't always know what love looks like? And so as we pray for love to abound more and more, oh, how we want love to be coupled and married to discernment and knowledge. Man, I think of as being a parent. i got to love my kids. i got to love my wife. But in the messiness of life and the confusion of this and that, sometimes I have absolutely no idea what that looks like. As a pastor, 
Man, some of the things that we're dealing with in the context of this church, and I think of over the years, the complexities. Man, what are we supposed to do now? We know we're supposed to love these people. Lord, give us the knowledge and discernment and the affection and the sympathy to know what that looks like. So he prays that love would be multiplied. He also prays that their character would be sanctified. And don't miss the connection here. Please. Pray that love would abound more and more so that you may approve what is excellent and be so pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. When Paul prays for the Philippians, he prays that love would be multiplied so that their character would be sanctified. So that their character would be sanctified. In summary, Paul wants them to be holy. That these saints, these holy ones in standing before God, would be holy in practice, would be holy before God at the day of Christ. That they would be pure and blameless, that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness. What a beautiful prayer for them. Unless we miss this, we must not disregard the connection of love and holiness. Careful. Careful. Because so often, again, looking at it from a different angle now, love needs wisdom and knowledge. Love needs discernment. But understand that a love that has discernment and knowledge is a love that will lead to holiness. True love for God leads to holiness. It leads to obedience. True love for one another looks to and inspires and seeks holiness as an end result. We must never sever holiness and love. The multiplication of love leads to the sanctification of character. That to love someone is to desire for them God's best for them, not just their preference. To desire eternal joy, not just temporal joy. Love always leads to conformity to the law and the nature of God. Don't let culture dupe you into thinking that love means let people sin. That's not love. I don't mean to be the bad guy this morning. I mean to set in order kingdom priorities with the nature of true love in Christ Jesus. And let's not forget what love is ultimately and how it was most wonderfully demonstrated for us. Jesus' death on the cross. Holy love that dealt with our issue, our sin and rebellion. Jesus had to die for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Sin is the issue 
And love is the remedy. But love leads to holiness. It does not negate truth. It does not minimize the need for purity. Love leads us to faithfulness in the will of the Lord. And that's what Paul prays for. May your love abound more and more so that you will be like Christ. Holy. And then he ends by praying that God would be glorified. May God be glorified in the Philippians. These are the priorities and purposes of the kingdom. And that's what Paul's praying for. May your love abound. May your character be conformed to Christ's image. Filled with the fruit of righteousness. The day of Christ. And ultimately, may God be glorified in you. These are comprehensive kingdom priorities. Are these your desires? People ask you, how can I pray for you? What are your first thoughts as you answer that question? When you think about people in your life that you love and you're praying for them, Are these the kind of purposes and priorities that come to mind? I think of being a parent. Like, Lord, help my kid get good, good grades. Lord, help my kid not get detention. Lord, help my kid score goals. You know, you think of, sounds, I'm making silly examples up. But we think about all the temporal things that we pray for. Right? All the, not that they don't matter. Everything matters to God, amen? He's a loving Father. But I think of all the temporal desires and prayers and things that we pursue and all those priorities, how they pale in comparison to the priorities that are set before us here. And I wonder, parents, as, as you think about your children and spouses as you think about your, your, your spouses, husbands and wives, as you think about you, your, your uh, fellow small group uh, you know, members in, in the body that you, you're in small group with, just as you think about relationships, can we move past these temporal things? Can we get a, a sense of ultimate eternal realities? Can we pray for prayers that we can pray with 100% assurance that God will hear these prayers and answer them according to his will? That his answer will be yes in Christ Jesus? Let's pray. Husbands, that our wives would abound in love more and more. That their nature and their character would be sanctified. That God would be glorified in their life. Moms, pray for your kids at night. and Pray that love would abound more and more, that they be conformed to Christ's image. Not just have a great career. Pray for these kingdom purposes and priorities. 
That's what Paul's given us here. This deep meaning and connection and these kingdom purposes in prayer. And this is just the beginning. It's just the beginning. But it's a sweet introduction, isn't it? It's a sweet introduction for us of the deep, meaningful connection that we have in the body of Christ together. Of the glorious kingdom priorities that we share. Let's give ourselves to this. Let's trust the Spirit's going to work in this series. That He's going to fashion unity in this body. That He's going to help us ward off doctrinal issues. And that He's going to give us hope for the return of Christ. That He'll all the more focus our perspective and our mind together as a body on these joyful privileges. Pray that God gives you joy in this book. Joy in such a difficult, despairing time. But for now, let's be reminded that when we share in Christ, we share a meaningful connection. And we share kingdom priorities in our prayers. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we fumbled around this passage and you spoke to us. You've reminded of some wonderful things. I pray that you would continue to speak to us comfort us, give us assurance, give us affection for one another, deepen our partnership and participation in grace. Lord, continue to help our love abound more and more. Sanctify us in Christ. Be glorified in this church, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This time we have the privilege to come together and have fellowship, to have meaningful connection together at the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and 17, Paul says this. He asks two questions. And in these questions, he gives us an implied answer. The cup of blessing that we bless Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Yes, it is. Amen? Together, in this cup and in this bread, we participate in the body and blood of Christ. We have fellowship with Christ and one another. And we come to the Lord's table as servants and saints by faith. And thus, we are made partakers of Christ's body and blood with all His benefits to our spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. Amen? That's what happens when we come to the Lord's Supper. 
We participate. We have fellowship in Christ together. And he is with us. He nourishes us. And he causes our growth in grace. That's good news, friend. Amen. I'm going to encourage the ushers and servers to come forward. They're going to stand on each side. If you're here today, and you know Jesus, you have embraced him by faith, and you have been baptized into his church, you are welcome to come and partake of this body and blood, this cup and bread. If you're here today and you have not placed your faith in Christ, you need to know more about what that means, you've not been baptized, you'd like to understand what baptism is, please know that we would love to have a conversation with you. We would love to introduce you to Jesus, share the good news of the gospel, and also prepare you for the waters of baptism. But for this meal, it's for those who have been baptized and have placed their faith in him. So let's pray one last time, and I'll invite you to come forward down the center aisle, take the elements, return to your seat, and wait as we will participate together. Father God, we thank you so much for just all the goodness, sweetness, and nourishment that we have together at this table. We remember your atonement, your sacrifice, your death in our place that paid for all of our sins. We remember in such a way to repent and turn from our sin. And we turn to you in faith. We come to you in weakness. We come to you with expectation to be nourished and strengthened that we might love you and obey you more. Fill us with the Spirit. Give us gratitude, Lord, as we receive. In Christ's name, amen. Friends, please stand, come forward, and receive.
as we partake of this together, hear from 1 Corinthians, what Paul says. He says, For I delivered, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen? Amen. Let's pray one last time uh, before we sing. Our Father, you are our salvation. You saw our state, you saw our need, and you provided perfectly and sufficiently in your Son, Jesus Christ. All praise and glory be to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, let's sing together. Stand.
Amen. We have so much to be grateful for, thankful for, as the people of God. That Jesus has died for our sins. He, he in so many ways, possesses us. He owns us. Amen. We are his people. And as his 